theyeshiva.net. They tell an anecdote about a guy, Mr. Jones, who bought a new refrigerator, bought a new refrigerator for his home. He wanted to get rid of his old fridge, so he put it out in his front garden. And he hangs a sign on the refrigerator saying, free to use, in good condition, you want it, you take it. For three weeks, the refrigerator is there without even one person looking twice at it. So he decided that people were probably too uh, untrusting of this deal. It just looked too good to be true. So he changes the sign, and the sign reads, Refrigerator for sale, $400. The next day, someone stole it. (laughs) So you have to understand people's psychology. We're going to explore today what is a very perplexing, enigmatic, fascinating, disturbing and really strange story. The story is from Nevi'im, from the prophets, from the opening of Sefer Yahushua, the book of Joshua, the first book of the prophets, which is always studied and read as the Mafteh, the Haftarah of Parshat Shlach. Forty long years have passed. The Jewish trek through the wilderness is coming to an end. Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam, whom the Gemara describes as the three shepherds who shepherded the people for 40 years, have all passed on. The entire adult generation that has experienced the Exodus and Sinai firsthand are all gone. A new generation emerged, and they are poised, they're ready to enter into their promised land, into the Holy Land. Their new leader is, of course, Yahushua bin Nun, or Joshua, the son of Nun. Just before they are about to enter, Yahushua decides to emulate his master and his teacher and to send again spies to scout the land. He doesn't send twelve, he sends two. Tradition has it that the two people he sent were Kalev and Pinchas. Kalev was the son of Yefunah from the tribe of Yehuda, who was a good friend of his. In fact, one of the first spies who went with him 40 years ago to check out the land. And the other one was Pinchas, who was much younger. He was a grandson of Aaron and a great nephew of Moshe Rabbeinu. His father was Elazar, who was the high priest, whose father was Aaron Hakayan. As they are about to enter into the land from the eastern border... They're going to cross the Jordan River, the Yardin, and enter through uh, the east into the land of Israel. He basically sends two spies to once again look at the land. Particularly, they are to enter from the city of Yericho, or Jericho in English, which is basically at the southeastern border of the land of Israel. The two spies... The prophet tells us in Yahushua, in the opening of Yahushua, arrive in Jericho, in Yericho. And they go to the home of a woman who is defined 
in the Tanakh as Rachav Hazaina. Her name, her name is Rachav, and she is defined as a Zaina. What does a Zaina mean? Some translate it as an innkeeper. She basically owned a bed, of bre- a bed and breakfast, a Motel Six. Zaina from the word Tizuna, Mazain, nutrition, food. It was basically a home where she fed people. It was like a bed and breakfast. You came to eat breakfast, lunch, dinner. You had a good night's sleep and you moved on. That is one interpretation in the commentators. And that's why they went to her home. Because this was a, uh, this was a bed and breakfast. This is where tourists or spies sleep the night. But there's another interpretation, which of course gives the story a whole different twist. And that's the interpretation of the Radak. The Radak, who was one of the great commentators on the Tanakh, in the name of the Gemara, in Meseches Zvachim, Daf Kuf Tezayin, this is a clear Gemara, Zvachim, page 116, translates Zoyna not as an innkeeper, but as a promiscuous woman who was involved in promiscuous, immoral relationships. Zoyna from the word Znus, which is immoral relationships. That is who Rachav is. Two interpretations in the word. The king of Yerichai is informed about the presence of two spies in his domain. Of course, he sends messengers to the woman who knows it all. And that is, of course, Rachav. Because whatever interpretation you choose for Rachav, she is well connected in more than one way. And therefore, he sends messengers to Rachav, particularly they have been seen in her home. So for practical purposes, she is the one who knows their whereabouts. Surprisingly, we expect at this point of the story, she would give them up. But instead of giving the spies up, she hides them on the roof of her home, on the roof of her inn, under flax plants. Under, as the Pasuk says, plants of pishton, of flax, F-L-A-X, that's where she hides them under these plants, and she tells them, she tells the messengers of the king, it's true. Two men came to me, I don't know from where they are, but I want to tell you that right before dark, when the gates of Jericho were about to close, they left the city. They went out of the city right before the gates closed for the night, I don't know where they went. But what I suggest is, pursue them quickly, so you can find them and overtake them. Rachav sends the king's messengers away. Now it's her turn to go up to the roof. She encounters the hidden spies and she shares with them the information they craved to hear. And the Pasuk says, and I'm going to translate it into English, before they were asleep, she came up to the roof. She says to them, I know that Hashem, the Lord, has given you the land. Your awe, your dread has fallen upon us. All the inhabitants of the land have melted away because of you, because of the Jews. We have heard how Hashem dried up the water of the Red Sea when you came out of Egypt. We heard about the events and our hearts melted. Nor did there remain any more spirit in any man because of you. Like come Ruach Bish, there's no man who has Ruach, who has spirit. Because the Lord your God, the God in heaven above and in the earth below. Because of that and what He's done for you, nobody has Ruach anymore. She makes a stipulation with them, a condition with them. That when the Jews conquer Jericho, she and her family, even if they remain, would remain unharmed. She then fetches a rope, 
a chevel, a rope, and she lowers them out of the window of her home. Since the wall of her home is part of the fortress of Jericho, in other words, one wall of her house is actually part of the chayma, the fortress of Yerichai, so when she lowers them outside of the window down the wall, they are now in the outskirts of the city outside of the wall. She tells them exactly which direction to go, where to hide out for a few days until the search stops, and then they can go back down into the wilderness, what we call today Jordan, on the other side of the Jordan River, and go back to her people. The Gemara asks the question, How can Rachav speak on behalf of the whole country? She says, the whole country is in awe of you. Your dread has befallen all of inhabitants of the land. What? Was she, in the, was she the editor-in-chief of the Canaan Times? Did she have reports of everybody in the country? How did everybody know about it? How did she know what everybody is experiencing? She could speak for herself. She could speak for her family. She could speak for the people who go through her in. She could speak for many people. But how can she speak for the entire country? The answer of the Gemara is a pretty loaded one. And because it's so loaded, I'm going to quote it word for word, and this time I'm going to quote it in Hebrew and translate. Mesecha Zvachim, Dav Kufta Zayim. That's tractate Zvachim, page 116a, and it continues on side b. Va'af Rachav Hazoyna Amra Lishluche Yahishua Kishamanu Esasherhevish Hashemis Meyamsuf, Vulaikam Maidruach Beish Dafilak Shuyanami Layakshu Minoyada. Rachav can speak and say, that no man in this whole country has any ruach anymore. Has any, as the Gemara says, masculine, vigorous, creative energy. They are all somewhat numb. How did she know? How did she know? The Omar Mar. Omru. The answer is, from the young age of 10 years old, Rachav served as a zayna, as a promiscuous young woman, as a harlot. This was her profession for 40 years. From when the Jews left Egypt, she was 10 years old. For the next 40 years, meaning till the age of 50, this was Rachav's occupation. And the Chazal, our sages, tell us that during this period, there was not a single prince or ruler in the area, not a sar or a nugget, who did not come to seek the services of Rachav. Exhibit number one. That's why she could say what is happening in the land. She knows what's going on. She knows the spirit or the lack of it. When she says, She knows what she's talking about. Another Gemara, Meseches Megillah Daf Tesvav, Tractate Megillah, page 15, I quote again. Tonu Rabbonon, Arba Noshem Yefyefiyos Hoyu Ba'olam, Sora, Avigail, Rochov, and Esther. This is Tractate Megillah, page 15. The rabbis taught there were four exquisite women in history. Sora, Avigail, who would later become a wife of David HaMelech, Rachav, and Esther. Granted, the Gemara goes so far to say and describe in Masechus Tainus, page 5, the powerful and dazzling 
appeal of Rachav. So now, at this point, when they meet Rachav, Chazal tell us she's 50 years old. And then the Gemara continues. Zvachim 116. After 50 years of age, she decided to convert to Judaism. Amra. She says, Let all I've done been for, be forgiven as a reward for the rope, the window, and the flax. Says Rashi, what does this mean? And he quotes a medrash, he quotes a mechilta. Rachav spoke to Hashem and she said, I have sinned through three items. Let me be forgiven through the same three items. A rope, flax, and a window. That's how I sinned. The same three items I want to use to be forgiven. What does this mean? What Rashi is saying is that for 40 years, Rachav used these three items in order to engage all of her guests. Why? She had to have three devices in order to be able to secretly bring her customers, her customers in and out of her residence. The rope, the window, and the flax plants. You see the many dignitaries who came to visit her couldn't afford, of course, to have their picture the next day on the front pages of the newspaper. So what happened? Everybody had to do it in secrecy. So therefore, she had a rope. <laughs> with the rope, they can climb into her window. And with the rope, they can climb out of the window. And suddenly, they're at the outskirts of the city. Nobody saw, nobody heard. Nobody observed it, no pictures. For years and years, that window and that rope really was, for 40 years, the two main items that allowed Rachav to continue her work. But sometimes people come into a house unexpected. There was a third item. She had flax plants, always gathered in a particular place, that people can always go under those plants and hide if necessary. Now, when she's 50, she uses the same three items for the messengers of Yeshua Benun, for the two spies. She lowers them out of her window through the rope, but first she hides them on the roof under the flax plants when the messengers of the king come. So she tells God, I want to be forgiven for the inappropriate use of these three items by virtue of the fact that now I use the same three items, the chevel and the chaloin and the pishton. What is perhaps most fascinating is another statement in the Gemara, Megillah, page 14. The Igaira V'nasva Yehoshua. Rachav converted, and who married her? Yehoshua Binun marries Rachav. Yehoshua, who was the one who sent the spies, who was one of the first set of spies of Moshe, who was the successor of Moshe, who was considered the new leader of the Jewish people, chosen by Hashem through Moshe to be their new manhig, their new melech, he is the one who marries Rachav. And the Gemara tells us in the name of Rabbi Yehuda, eight of our prophets, including, and all of them were Koyanim, came out of Rachav, including Chulda Hanaviyah. 
In fact, we say eight of our prophets, and three of them were our greatest prophets. Yecheskel, Yirmiya, and Chulda, the prophetess. They are all descendants of Rachav. The Yalkut Shemoni says in Bamidbar that Yecheskel, Ezekiel, was a great prophet, but people used to mock him. Why did they mock him? They said, Yecheskel, who was your elder Baba? Aha, a real tzatzke. Rachav Azoina, how did you become such a chosher of a prophet? You know how Jews are, right? Even before Google, we have a file on everybody. We know their yichas, any family you mention. I remember here before the war. Today he became the chief rabbi, Rabban Shalkobne Agayla. I remember him in the good old days. But the main thing is now, we love those files. And we have it, Baruch Hashem, on everybody. They had it on the prophets too. Let's remember his Baruch And that's why the Pasuk has to emphasize the Yichas, the lineage of Yicheskel, Ben Buzi HaKoyin, at the beginning of Yicheskel, to explain the dignity of Yicheskel. There's an extraordinary medrash in Tona Deve Leo, chapter 22, and I'm going to quote it. G'doyla tshuva yoysem in atfila. Tshuva, repentance is greater than prayer. Shemikol atfila shoyem ispalul mimoshe rabbeinu loy niskabul mimenu this medrash basically pit, puts Rachav in a superior position to Moses. Rachav is greater than Moshe. Moshe davened many, many prayers to enter into the Holy Land. It was not accepted. Rachav repents, and her repentance is absolutely embraced. Not only is she living in the Holy Land, she's saved in the Holy Land, she marries Yeshua Binun. And then the sages add, Lama Nikrashma Rachav. Why was her name Rachav? Shehinasis Rechava Bezachias Vezachso Sheyatsimemenu Shiva Neviyim. Because Rachav became broad, Rachav from the word broadness, wide, she became large, exceeding in her merits. And seven prophets, seven male prophets, and Chulda, the female prophet, all came out of her. These are some of the background material I want to focus on, but particularly on two major questions. Rachav repents, Rachav converts. After a 40-year, uh, let's say, glorious career in her field, she decides that it was really inappropriate, and she wants to open a new chapter in her life. Granted. And nothing stands in the way of a person changing their life. But don't you agree with me that between that and marrying the leader of the Jewish people, there is somewhat of a stretch. I mean, imagine today, right, if the Shatchan would call you and tell you about Rachav's career and tell you that after 40 years, Shimamish became something special. Would you also consider it? You all know the answer. Now imagine the rumors about Yeshua Binun at that vart. Can you imagine what was going on? Yeah? Yeshua's mother should have said What do you say around here? What are people going to say? Yeah, forget about if it's right or wrong. But as you know, real Jews don't live that way. Yeshua Binun marries Rachel. But I'm not talking about what people are going to say, what Yeshua himself was thinking. It's quite interesting. 
Was this really the right shidduch, a good shidduch between Yeshua and Rachel? It's like interesting. She didn't only convert and do tshuva, she like went, whoops, right to the top. <laughs> that's number one. Oh, wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. I'm looking for a rope and a window to get out of here. <laughs> No rope, no window, and no air condition. Okay. I want to understand something else. When you read this, you know, we read these things, we learn these things. Maybe some of us learned a few of these things in school. We gloss over it. No? Okay, sorry. So you learned it now. We gloss over it. We don't really appreciate the depth there. Why does the rope, the window, and the flax suddenly become the issue here. It happens to be that these items incidentally played a role here. But that's not the story. They were just things that Rachav used in order to be able to do her work. And then she used the same items later when she wanted to save the spies. But no, Chazal tell us that she turns to Hashem and she says, Bishar Hevel Chaloin and Plishtim. It's these three items that I use now that should forgive me for using these three items all the way. All the all, throughout all the years, he should forgive me as a reward for the rope, the window, and the flax. That's what he should forgive you for. He should forgive you for saving the spies, for helping the Jewish people, for being part of the divine plan for his people. I got it. You happen to use a window, flax, rope. Great, beautiful. No. These three items become the central focus. Now most people would say, okay, it's just a midrashic way of saying I should be forgiven because of the noble thing I'm doing. But why would then Chazal mention these three items? These three items now being used for a positive purpose should forgive for the three items being used for so many years for immoral behavior. What's the connection? Repentance is always possible. But why not focus on the fact that she's repenting? I have remorse. I have regret. I regret my past. I'm changing my future. That's what forgiveness is. If I hurt you, I come over to you. And I have what's called an Allah charata al-avar, kabbalah al-haba, remorse for the past. I apologize for what I did or what I said. And I make a resolution for the future. I verbally communicate confession. This is what the mechanism of tshuva is. Not that I say I'm going to use the same rope that I used then. The behavior of Rachav is what's important. Not the three completely incidental items. The flax and the rope in the window. And it's here that we are introduced today to an astounding teaching of the Maharal. The Maharal was Rabbi Yehuda Leva, the rabbi of Prague. He was born in 1520, approximately 1520, and he passed away 1609. As you know, he was one of the great sages and rabbis and thinkers and authors of his time, known as the Maharal, Rabbi Yehuda Leva of Prague. He has a commentary on the Gemara called Chidushe Agadus Maharal. On this piece of Gemara in Zvachim 116 that I've been quoting in this class, he offers us an extraordinary insight. His words, however, are usually very abstract. They're philosophical, they're abstract, and they're somewhat cryptic. Not concise, but cryptic. He doesn't write so brief, he writes pretty elaboratively, but hard to understand. 
And therefore, his words sometimes lend themselves to different perspectives and interpretations. And it's probably the reason he wrote in a more abstract way. So I'm going to, however, focus in on one dimension of what he's saying, at least the way I understood it. Now you have to understand that this is an interpretation written more than 500 years ago. Nonetheless, it seems like he is transcribing a condition that we are very well familiar with today. And not only that, modern day studies of psychology and work of therapy really revolve around some of the ideas that the Maharal is presenting here in this Gemara. The flax, the window, and the rope are not three incidental items. They represent three aspects of life. They represent three aspects of identity. And they represent three experiences that people experience internally that lead us to make different choices in our life. They lead us to one form of behavior or another form of behavior. These three items can transform our lives and guide us in directions that are either extremely constructive, productive, meaningful, and wholesome, or the other way. Let's go through them. What is unique about the flax plant? I don't know how many of you grow flax on a regular basis, but the truth is, the Torah describes garments that are made of linen, which is produced from uh, flax, they are called big day vad. Big day vad. The term bad or vad, vez dalid or vez dalid in Hebrew, is related to the word term levad, which means alone. Levad means alone. Or badad. Eicha yashva badad. Badad means alone, lonely. Bididut. Bididut is loneliness. Why would linen, why would garments of flax be called lonely? What is the reason for that? For this you have to know a little bit of the world of botany. So the Gemara tells us in Maseches Yuma, page 71, and it relates to Yom Kippur. Because Yom Kippur, the Kohen Gadol had to wear four garments made exclusively of linen, flax. A whole year he wore eight garments which were woven with gold, but not on Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur was only four garments, simple, white, linen made of flax. Big day, bad, koidish yilbash. He had to wear bgodim of bad. Ask the Gemara, why is it called bad? So the Chazal explains, and Ashi explains it, that basically flax, like hemp, like canvas, like hemp, the Gemara calls hemp canvas, is a type of plant that basically does not divide into branches like most bushes, plants, and of course trees. Rather, it grows from the ground in stalks. Each stalk stands alone. Linen is made from the inner stalk of the plant, and each one of the seed capsules of the flax plant emerge and grow individually. So the flax is a lonely plant. That's flax. Next is a window. What is a window? A window is what allows us to peer out of our own home or the room where we are and search outside of our own environment. What is a rope? A rope is, of course, that item which allows us to connect two separate entities. So if I want to climb up to the roof, but I'm all the way on the bottom, the rope is what links the bottom, the earth, the, bo- the ground floor to the, to the, uh, to the roof. Or... 
when I connect something, when I tie a rope to something, I'm basically taking two separate entities and connecting them, perhaps with a third entity. But a rope is actually the mechanism of linkage. It's what I use to create links. A rope is a link, a cheva. Three items. The lonely plant of bad, badad, flax. From all plants and all bushes. The loneliest plant in terms of it retains its own individual properties without mixing. The window allows me to see outside and the rope allows me to connect. Do you see what these three items represent in life? The Maharal says, for 40 years, you could look at Rachav and you could just say, eh. You could label Rachav as a simple, promiscuous woman involved in heinous, immoral transgressions and sins. That's one perspective. There is a deeper perspective, which doesn't negate the first perspective, but puts it in context. The Maharal asks, what is it that motivated Rachav? What is it that motivates so many people to engage in a certain type of lifestyle? And let me make it clear, Rachav is only a model for a certain existential angst that we're going to be addressing. But the way people deal with it could be like Rachav, or could be in another million ways. And they may look in the mirror and say, I'm much better off than Rachav. But nonetheless, we each have our outlets that we have to examine and see what is their root. Says the Maharal, it all begins from the fact that we are flax. We feel lonely. Many of us feel like lonely creatures. We crave attachment. We crave love, camaraderie, connectedness. Some of us in the deepest place of our existence feel alone. I am really, really alone in this world. Alone does not mean that I don't have social acquaintances. It doesn't mean that I don't have 9,000 friends on Facebook. But usually the more friends on Facebook, the more alone. There was a teenage girl who took her life, and at her funeral the mother says, where is everybody? She had 3,000 friends on Facebook. Why is nobody here? So a person could be very social. A person could have a hundred bar mitzvahs, l'chaims, varts, chasenes, ufrufs to go to. And they dress up for each one of them as though it's their own chasen or their own wedding and so forth. But what we're talking here about is an internal sense of eicha, yashva, badad, where a person is really, really alone. There's a deep loneliness. They could smile on the outside, they could socialize on the outside, but they're alone. What's the next step? The next step is, I look out the window. <laughs> I don't want to be alone. I look out the window. The window represents a view of life based on my loneliness. My loneliness develops into a perspective. A perspective about how I see the people around me, the world around me, the events around me. I open a window in my own heart to peek out and search for something that I can connect with to alleviate the anxiety, the pain, the boredom, the trauma, and the torment of my solitariness. And then comes stage three. 
I throw out a rope. I actually connect because I need to alleviate that loneliness. But I don't begin with a rope. I begin with flax and I hide under the flax because I'm alone. And then I look out the window. I'm still in my own world. But I created a window based on my loneliness. I look out, searching to ease that anxiousness, to ease that deep, deep pain of loneliness, of really not being connected to anybody or anything, really not even being connected to myself, really not having the ability to trust. Certainly I can't trust anybody. This is especially true with young people who have been betrayed at a very early age, physically or emotionally, especially if there was abuse, especially if the abuse focused on very deep places of their being, Physically or emotionally, all of abuse is very deep. But then what often happens is you have an abandoned person. Literally a solitary person. They may be tall and handsome, functional, talented, creative and brilliant. At some point, even straight A's in the class and everything looks picture perfect. But out of the blue, one day, all the pain and all the trauma emerges. And if you're sensitive, you encounter a profound loneliness and mistrust. I am badad. Man can't be alone. But what if I am alone? At least in my perception, I am alone. I have no God. I have no self. I don't feel I have parents. I don't feel I have siblings. I have no friend in the world. I am truly existentially alone. And sometimes people decide to trust and then they're betrayed. And then it's worse than everything. Because when I already choose to trust for a second time as an adult, and I'm betrayed again, now it's almost over. This is always the flax. Now it exists again on many levels. These are just models that people can apply to their own lives. What type of loneliness? Loneliness itself doesn't come in one shade. Loneliness itself is pretty complex. But the common denominator of loneliness is... The concept of to Echa Yashva Badad Ha'ir Rabasiyam Sarasi Bamedinais Echa Yashva Badad Ha'ir Rabasiyam Haisakalmana. That's how Yirmiyo Hanavi opens up the book of Echa of Lamentations. So I open windows. I look out through windows. I check out the scene through windows. But remember, my windows are often tainted. My, off, my windows are often colored. My, off, my windows are often designed in a way that it could suit the eyes, the perspective that I presently have. And then I throw out my rope. And when I throw out my rope, I connect. I connect with people. I connect with objects. I connect with things. How do you respond to the flax in you, the Maharal says? That's the question. What do I do with my loneliness? What do you do with your loneliness? What do you do? Do you eat? That's what I do, um, among other things. What do you do with your sense of, that's from the better things. What do you do with your loneliness? It's one of the most important questions in life. First of all, do you acknowledge your loneliness? Do you even know that you have it? Or it's so painful that you can't sit with that pain, and therefore you have to run away from it, which means you don't even know that you're responding to it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is so much part of who I am, 
that it completely defines me to the point that I'm not even aware of it. So I can't even put it in context because it puts me in its own context. That's the first level. So there is a level where I'm aware and I'm responding to it. There's a level I'm not even aware that I am completely driven by it because I can't afford to acknowledge it. So I'm so distracted, I can't even be bothered by the fact that I'm going to tell myself that I'm bothered. Because that itself may become too powerful, too vulnerable. So what do I do to get love? What do I do to feel important? What do I do to get connected? What do I do to feel validated? How do I deal with my existential loneliness? Anybody wants to answer? (laughs) You don't have to all answer at once. Yes. Nice, yeah? Yes. Avoma? Wow. You've been reading Sarté. You're French. You've been reading Sarté. <laughs> Kierkegaard. <laughs> okay. The French existentialists, we know them. Okay. Point well taken. Point well taken. Point well taken. And then there's the great Jewish mystic by the name of Woody Allen who once said, <laughs> Life is full of loneliness, misery, and suffering, and it's all over much too soon. Or as one woman was sitting in a kosher restaurant and she says, The portions are so horrible and so small. <laughs> Hashem what? Hashem yira, yeah. Gam So let's see how Rachav dealt with it. How did Rachav respond to her loneliness? She worked hard 40 years to distract herself. That's a long time. Remember, 40 years in those days was a lifespan, at least for many. All of us open windows. And some of us search for easy, fast, and shallow ways to connect. Ways that will eclipse the profound sense of loneliness. We search for connections that demand no loyalty, no inner work, no profound discipline, no deep transcendence, and no deep spiritual and emotional labor and toil with our own fears, our own pain, our own insecurities, and our own relationships. We look for relationships and connections that require no vision, no commitment. We don't think of long-term consequences or long-term truths. What we're searching is for instant gratification and have that illusionary sense that I have value, I'm connected, and I'm loved. Somebody once explained to me, not from this community, why he joined a gang. You know, some youth join gangs, very dangerous gangs, where they have to prove themselves in very sadistic and brutal ways. He needed to feel value. He needed to feel connection. Some people sell their bodies to the devil of immoral relationships, not just for money, but for value, for fake value. Some of us become addicted. We get involved in all types of addictions to escape 
just for a few moments from our loneliness. And it becomes such a need. And the more we do it, the more we need. Because the more we do it, the more we need in order to up the stakes. And increase the volume and the quality and the quantity in order to run away from that. We all have impulses and urges that are directed towards particular people, particular things, particular behaviors, particular experiences. From infatuation to crushes, from instincts, inclinations to addictions, from all types of attachments, ropes. In our mind, we tell ourselves, if I can only have this person or this thing or this item, all my problems will be solved. They represent to us that magical pill that will fill all of our voids. They become the idols that substitute for what we're really searching for because it's an easy fix. It's an external fix. Now, here's the key. These impulses and inclinations you don't have to run away from. They are not as negative as they seem. They are all representing a loneliness that is behind it. And the loneliness you actually have to address. Not that there's an easy solution for it. That I have to be able to contain it. I have to be able to look at it. I have to be able to experience it. Sometimes people will have cravings. And really the cravings may be destructive. But what they're expressing is a pure and deep, sometimes childlike and innocent yearning for something that they never had. Sometimes the outlet will be the opposite of what they're really searching for. So one has to be able to search the pnimius, the fruit inside the shell, the peri inside the klipa, be able to go through the husk and see what is really going on. So therefore, behind many habits and behind many addictions, there is a yearning to receive or give love. Which is why you will see that sometimes very deep and sensitive people fall very low into the abyss of addiction. Not because they're superficial. The other way around, because they're deep. I once heard Dr. Tversky give a speech at our Shabbos recovery weekend in Boca Raton, Florida. Rabbi Abraham, Dr. Abraham Tversky. And he said these words. He said, 60 years I've been treating addiction. And if you'll ask me, is there a common denominator between all addicts? And I will tell you, yes. The most spiritual, sensitive souls I have ever encountered on the globe. That's a profound observation. When I am deeply spiritual and sensitive, I feel things that other people don't feel. I feel relationships in a way that other people don't feel. I'm sensitive to dysfunction, to lies, to hypocrisy, to deception, to superficiality, to fakeness, to a family or a home that looks picture perfect, but inside it is rotten, decomposed to the core. Other people make loss over it. They somehow find refuge in all types of other stuff. But some people can't. They need the truth and the whole truth. And when they don't have it, the pain is so profound. And the rest of their life, they find themselves running from it, escaping from it. All they're doing is trying to relax their pain. If only they would know that there was another way. And that is try to fill the value that they're yearning for. The void that they want to fill because of something that is truly meaningful to them. Rachav 
becomes a zoyna, she becomes a harlot. But what does her name mean, Rachav? What does her name mean? Broadness. Big. If Rachav wasn't a big soul, Rachav wouldn't have to do this for 40 years. It was because, that's what the Chazal are saying, because she had such a harchava, her soul was so huge, when her soul could not be satisfied with what it really needed, the pain was so much more acute than anybody else. And therefore, she had to run much further. She had to throw herself off much steeper cliffs than, cliffs than anybody else. She had to numb herself in a much more profound way than anybody else. The anesthesia she uses is far more intense than anybody else. Remember, every day you need something new because yesterday's pills don't work for today's anxiety. I'm done because I never really filled anything. I thought I filled it, but I never filled it. So now I always have to up and up and up and up. This is true with almost all external substances that are trying to fill an inner void. The bigger you are, the bigger your sense of loneliness. The deeper you are, the deeper your void. Quite literally, the void goes very, very deep. Yosef Das, Yosef Machayv. King Solomon in Proverbs says, the more perception, the more pain. Ignorance is bliss is not only a cliche. It exists on many levels. People who are deeply perceptive of truth can in mamish meshugavarin in their welt. If you don't have the right mentorship, if you're not exposed to true wisdom, you could go crazy. And some of you in this room know exactly what I am talking about. And you find yourself running from one guru to another guru, from one shear to another shear, from one rabbi to another rabbitson, from one shtick to another shtick, from one chumra to another chumra, from one obsession to another obsession, from one remedy to another remedy, from one zgula to another zgula, from one caver to another caver, from one book to another book, and every book has this glittering title that tells you, ooh, this is going to solve all your problems, you buy this book, you read it, now you're going to become a new person only to figure out that nobody could turn you into a new person. It's only you and your own perspective that can channel how you see yourself in the eyes of God and how God sees you. But it's the das that creates such machayv. Rachav was big, broad, gigantic. She had a huge soul. Imagine, as I once gave you a metaphor, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, growing up in a home, without a piano. What would happen? The genius of Mozart would have to come out somewhere. But where? I don't know. And I dread to think what the outlet would have been. Thank God he had a piano. And all his creative ingenuity could come out in the piano. Well, every soul in its own way is a little Mozart. Every Jewish soul is a little Mozart. The Gemara says in Shabbos, Altigui b'Meshichoi. Hashem says, "Don't touch my Mashiachs, my anointed ones." Zog the Gemara, Elu shall These are the children. Why are children called Mashiachs? The answer is because every little child growing up, in his or her dreams, is going to change the world. In his or her dream is going to be a Mashiach, or going to bring Mashiach, or going to do something that's going to have an impact. But as we grow up, 
There are plenty of people who tell us verbally or other ways, cut it out. Just cut it out. Graduate, get a job and be quiet and let's move on. Just be a good girl, be a good boy and stop giving me your headaches. Don't touch, don't destroy that energy in people. Don't destroy the child that remains even in the adult. Even in that 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, etc. Your old adult or senior citizen. There's a little child, a little Mashiach who is still very, very optimistic, confident, idealistic, happy, joyous, free-spirited, uninhibited. You recognize any of these qualities? <laughs> that can really change the world. But we damage, we don't believe in it. Altigui, don't touch it. Let it be. Don't destroy it with your cynicism. Because that cynicism is what allowed you to destroy your own little spark. Don't destroy that spark in other people. Some of us are very good in destroying that spark in other people. To deal with our own trauma, of our own spark being destroyed. So you see, Rachav had an image of self that was very expansive. But nobody could fill it. Nobody could embrace it. There were no arms to contain it. And nobody taught her that she can contain her own broadness. You are powerful enough to contain all of your trauma and all of your pain. It's one of the most important things people ought to know. You are more powerful than all your pain. Doesn't mean your pain is not pain, or your trauma is not trauma, and your past is not difficult and challenging. But it means you, your I, your soul, is more powerful than all of it. It's the ultimate rachav that could contain it. Mitachas zroyos oilam. The Pasuk says in Vezayis Habracha, below the world there are arms. Mitachas zroyos oilam. What an image. Below the world, you have a globe in your house? Imagine, below that globe there are arms. So Reb Nachman of Breslov says in Lekutei Maharan, there are people who feel stable in the world. You know those people, you can even see how they walk. When they walk, both of their feet get planted into the earth and they like don't budge. And then there are people who never feel firm on the earth. They always feel like they're falling off the world. What are those people supposed to do? So Moshe Rabbeinu says, Reb Nachman says, Mitachas zroyos oilam. Under the world there are arms. The arms are there for those who fall off. Who fall off the globe. They can fall in to the cosmic divine arms to contain them. But here's the catch. If you feel comfortable on the planet, you'll never feel those arms. You don't have to. It's only those who actually feel that they fall off planet Earth. They have no place for themselves. They don't know where they're going. They can allow themselves to be embraced by the zroyos, by the container. That is rachav. It's big and broad enough to contain all of your experiences. So when we look at our life, there's so many experiences. Right now you're having experiences. Right now your thoughts are going through so many experiences. That's just the nature of the beast. We don't stop thinking, and you haven't stopped thinking from the day you were born. Do you know how many thoughts went through that poor brain? That poor brain with a hundred million neurons. Who do we keep it busy? Give it vacation once in a while. Never. You're entitled to vacation. Your brain is not entitled for vacation. Somehow nobody tells the brain, my dear brain Allah, you also deserve vacation. Because right away, what is vacation? I don't know how to take vacation. I'm too anxious. I was uh, blah, blah, blah. Oh, do me a favor. Relax. I don't know how to do that. 
That brain contains a lot, and the soul can contain it all. So for 40 years, Chazal are saying Rachav was involved with every minister, with every aristocrat, with every handsome man in the country, because her heart was aching, and aching very deeply. She couldn't be satisfied with one person. Remember, in a shallow, non-genuine relationship, you always need more and more and more because you never feel you really have anything. No relationship is real. A bottomless pit continues to persist in the depth of your psyche. The connections that she cultivates, the ropes that Rachav threw out of her own soul to connect to other people were good for one night. The next night, she needs a new rope. A koyin? Yes, yes. Yes, she was. Adultery is not for non-Jews either. Every day she was connected to someone. She had ropes for 40 years. But she knew that she was really connected to no one. Hence, a desire that is insatiable. So basically... Rachav was the first user of Facebook, Instagram, and social media. She had 399,000 friends. It could be she had 3.4 million friends. Everyone had like, 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 like. But no real relationships. No introspection. There are people that you could follow every emotion they have during the day. We know when they go shopping... And if there's traffic and if there's a line, but we know nothing about them because they know nothing about themselves. All their inner energy, they crush and repress to live a completely superficial, shallow life. It's hard for me to understand how people can substitute genuine living with absolute fake living. You should understand even from a psychological point of view, using any of these tools to cultivate relationships that are deep, is futile and a grave mistake. Relationships that are genuine, you cultivate person to person, soul to soul, heart to heart. These things are blessings. Yeah? A shear can go out to 25,000 people. Use these items. Malar is deyes Hashem. A person can motivate an ideal, can spread a message, can make be successful in business. But to make it a replacement for individual journeys, for individual relationships. It is a pity when 15-year-old girls, 16-year-old girls, 17-year-old girls, 30, 40-year-old mothers don't know better than to live life on such an external level and feel accomplished through it. It's almost one of the greatest sins to the self, a betrayal of anything valuable that exists in your soul and dignity. And so, Rachav lives for 40 years. What does Rachav discover one day? She discovers two messengers of Yehoshua. And she will end up marrying Yehoshua. Why will she end up marrying Yehoshua? We now go to the next step. There's a sefer called Gilgulei Neshamas, Reincarnations of Souls, written by Rabbeinu Menachem Azariah Fanu, 
a student of Rabbi Yisrael Srug, a student of the students of the Ariza. He says, Yehoshua bin Nun, we know, came from which tribe? Ephraim, who was a son of Yosef. Rachav was a non-Jew who converted. Yehoshua was a reincarnation of Yosef. His soul was a Gilgal of Yosef's soul. Rachav's soul was a reincarnation of Poitifar's wife's soul. Poitifar's wife wanted Yosef very, very much. And she was a deep lady. In fact, Chazal say, L'shem Shamayim Niskavna. She saw astrologically that she's connected to Yosef. Her connection to him was very deep. It wasn't simple. She also was lonely. She also had a window. And she also threw out a rope. And Yosef rejected her rope. But the Gemara says it wasn't simple for Yosef. He came home one day and there was nobody home. So Chazal He finally surrendered. Poitifar's wife was incessant. Understand, if she was lonely, how lonely was he? How lonely was Yosef? At the age of nine, he lost his mother. His beloved mother, Rachel, who lived for him. She was gone. He had a father who loved him. But then one day, his own brothers snatched him from his father, threw him into a pit, sold him into slavery for life. He had not a brother, not a sister, not a father, not a friend, not a comrade, not a lawyer for heaven's sake. He didn't even have a lawyer to defend him in court. He's in a pit. Before that, he's a slave, a slave for life. And he's 17 years old. He's not 57 years old. He's 17 years old, a teenager. And he's well-groomed. He's royal. He's aristocratic. He's a prince. He's dreaming of changing the world. This man dreams that all the sheaves are bowing down to him. The sun, the moon, the stars. And now he's a slave for life. A slave. And his master's wife asks him to do something for a few minutes and she threatens him. If not, I will destroy you. I will poke out your eyes. I will amputate your legs. I will torture you to death. And she does well on her warning. She puts him in prison for life. Do you understand the level of loneliness that this kid is in? The level of pain he's in? He was in a pit, not just physically, and a pit with scorpions. Do you know 17-year-olds in a pit? And their life is not as tragic as Yosef's life. And the Gemara says he was about to surrender. And what stopped him? Where did he see the image in his father? You remember what it says? Where? In the window. In the window, he saw the image of his father. What window? What window? What do, there was CNN playing in the window, and they had a picture of Yaakov and Hebron. They interviewed him. What window? He's in the depth of Egypt. In Poitifar's wife's house, nobody is home. He wants to surrender. He can't contain it anymore. It's before Matan Torah. Remember, his family will not be ruined as a result. There won't be signs. Avi avoy satuma. Sevet some shidduch. You want to translate? It won't, it won't damage the marriage and the, and the family marriage prospects in the family. In fact, in Egypt, this is what everybody does. <laughs> It's a morally depraved society. If you don't do it, you're Meshuggah. This is the culture. 
He won't ruin his father, his brother. He's alone, for heaven's sake. How does he abstain? He sees his father's image in a window. The loneliness was there, but it's the window that changes everything. In the window, he saw his father's image. And when he saw his father's image in the window, he ran. Vayonos Rachav came from the wife of Potiphar. That was her soul. Yahushua was a Gilgal of Yosef. At this point, they can actually come together. At this point, Yahushua could marry Rachav. But now I want to understand what is it that Yosef saw in that window. When a person is in such isolation, what do you see in your window? When you are in such isolation and pain and torment, what do you see out of your window? <laughs> Perhaps, what else? When it says that Yosef saw the image of Yaakov, he knew what Yaakov looked like before. <laughs> he was 17 years old. He grew up with this man. He knew what he looked like a day before, two days before. He didn't forget what his father looked like. What is it that he saw? One of the interpretations is, means he saw his own image from the perspective of his father. It's not only his father's image that he saw, he saw his image from his father's point of view. He saw himself the way his father Yaakov Avinu sees him. When everybody told Yaakov to relax and get over his son's death, Yaakov said, I will never get over his death. Chazal say, why not? Because you can only find comfort for somebody who's dead, not for somebody who's living. You don't forget somebody who's living. Even somebody who's dead, you don't forget. But there's a certain mechanism of moving on. When somebody is alive, you're in limbo. You can't move on because they're alive. Yaakov sensed that he's alive, even though he thought he was dead, but he sensed he was alive. He couldn't be comforted. What does this mean spiritually? Spiritually, it means that often people will say about a certain child, get over him. Move on. He's dead. Done. You have another 11 kids. You have 11 kids. Come on. And Yaakov had another 11 girls too. So Baruch Hashem, Shabbos was gone to Lebedic without Yosef. There's a black sheep in the family. What did Yaakov say? You don't know my boy. He's not dead. He's alive. He refused to be comforted. Why did he refuse? Vayimoyin comes from the word imun, emuna. He had trust and faith in his child. He knew who his child is. Hundreds of miles away or far away, somewhere in Egypt, there's a boy alone in the world. But he has a vision. Through the window, he sees himself from the vantage point of his father. He has a father who believes in him, who trusts him, 
who always empowered him, a father who made him know at the core of his being that he is a prince of God, a ray of infinity, a fragment of heaven, a deeply powerful and wholesome person, a shliach, a messenger, an ambassador of love, light, and hope. And thus, vayimo'en, it says, he refused Paitifar's demands. He had a father who refused, vayimo'en, he had a father who refused to give up on him. There was a ripple effect. It triggered within himself the power to refuse, to surrender his dignity, his morality, his soul, his life, and his future to this person. Not that the loneliness was gone. Not that the pain was gone. But the window gave his loneliness a perspective that this was his mission and he could contain it and he could hold on to it. And he will not throw the rope to connect himself to things or people that ultimately will betray his truest existence, his deepest values, his relationship with truth, his relationship with God, his relationship with his own soul, and ultimately his relationship with his father and his mother as well. A few hundred years later, Yeshua will marry Rachav. Rachav was that soul. She was broad. She was a good shidduch for Yeshua. They were both broad people. Yosef was very... What does Yosef mean? Increase. Harchava. To add. Just like Rachav means to add. And Poiti Ferry, you know what that means? <laughs> Priya. You know what Priya means? Uparas Roshayisha. Openness, exposure, disclosure, revelation. Priya, Miloshin Priya. So now, Rachav, 40 years, is responding to her loneliness in one, day, one way. Her window sees a lot of things, but it doesn't have a Yaakov Avinu. It doesn't have a Yaakov Avinu to be able to mirror back to Rachav who she really is. And what she could be. So she throws out the rope for whoever she throws out the rope. After 50 years of age, Rachav decides to change her life. But what happens when she changes her life? She doesn't repress her personality. Rachav takes with all her loneliness, all her pain, all her anxiety, all of her experiences. And she brings it all as a gift to God. Rachav doesn't run from her past. If she would run from her past, she would tell God, forget about the rope, forget about the window, forget about the flax. She doesn't say forget about it. She says, I want those three things to be redefined. I want to redefine my past. I don't want to run from my past. That's what real tshuva means. I don't run from my past. I go back into my past and I redefine it from a divine perspective. I see my paths. I see my journeys. And I say, I know I had flax. I know I had a window. I know I had a rope. But look what I did now with my flax. I hid the spies of Yeshua. Look what I did now with my window. I let them go out of the window. Look what I did now with my rope. I set them on a course of freedom. To be able to save them as a result of them to help the entire nation build 
in Eretz Yisrael, a holy land here. And therefore, when that happens, Rachav ought to go into Yahushua, ought to marry Yahushua, because of her broadness, because of her expansiveness, because of her extraordinary magnitude and greatness and grandeur. So therefore... Rachav, at 50 years, marries the greatest Jew of the generation, Yahushua Binun. And it all began because she contemplated her own wall, her own flax, her own window, and her own rope. She realized at that point that all of life is basically a play that consists of three scenes. There's a flax, there's a window, and there's a rope. Take a look at your life. And what do they say? Life is a play, right? (laughs) That play consists of three scenes. The flax, the window, and the rope. The flax is my internal sense of loneliness. The window is the perspectives I create based on it. The paradigms and the things I see and I want to see. The ropes are the relationships that I make with people or with things. These three exist in every life. How we allow these three scenes to play themselves out in our life, to determine whether we live one way or another way, that's the choice we all make. The three I can't change. But do I live based on a result of that, as a result of that a life of emptiness and falsehood, or a life of true value, true dignity, And true emes. That's the choice I have to make. Every person has to make it. But those three things exist. Come back now to another Levadoi. Yosef saw Yaakov in the window. It's not good for man to be alone. But there was one man who was alone. Do you remember who? Yaakov. You remember the Pasuk? Vayivaser Yaakov. It was the middle of the night. Nobody was there. Yaakov remained alone. And you know what happens? A man wrestles with him till dawn break. Yaakov was levadoi. He knew what it means to be alone. He had a big family. He had Rachel, Mitleya, Mitbilla, Mitzilpa with some chevre, Reuven, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda could take down a city. There were guns chevre. It was Lebedic. Don't worry. But he was levadoi. Because everybody is levadoi. In the middle of the night especially. They all went over the Yabok River, but in the middle of his night, in the middle of his own night, till dawn breaks, he is alone. And when you are alone, somebody tries to kill you. And if they can't kill you, they make you limp. You walk for the rest of your life, but you don't have stature. Maybe not physical, and worse, no emotional stature. No stature. I'm duck. I'm caved in forever. I can't lift my head up. I'm limping. My sciatica, my sciatica nerve is dislocated. My gidhanosha, Yaakov. Levadoi. Yosef is alone and he looks out the window. And what does he see? He sees his father who is also alone. And then the Medrash comes on that pasuk, Vayivasa Yaakov Levadoi. 
and says, This is the meaning of the Pasuk. On that day, God will be exalted alone. What's the connection? So when Shloimele made his song, he brought the two together. You ever realized? Right? What's the connection? Because he knew the Madrash. Okay. <laughs> What's the... Yaakov remains alone. God will be exalted alone. Ah. You see, loneliness is part of the reality of existence. There's a part of me that only I know. There's a part of you that only you know. That sense of loneliness can bring us to two places. One is, I become a victim. I become bitter. I become cynical. There's another way. I connect it with God being alone. Me and God, or God and I, Meaning, when you could connect your aloneness to God's aloneness. The Degel Machen Ephraim says that every person has a nekuda, a contribution to make in the world that nobody else can make. There is something that is connected to you. Every person has to say the world was created for me. Now that sounds pretty pompous. Imagine a person walking around, the world was created for me, the world was created for me. My name is actually not Jacobson. We come from Georgia, Russia. Our name was Yakobashvili. Yakobashvili, which means Jacobson in Georgian. Shvili means a son. So where I grew up, there was somebody in Shul who always liked to uh, build my self-confidence. So he used to tell me, you know why your name is Shvili? Because your philosophy is, Bishvili nivra The world was created for me. Doesn't sound very good. Chazal say, everyone has to say that the world, isn't that like real narcissism? <laughs> Tell your husband, the whole world was created for me. Your husband says, no, for me. <laughs> great, it's a great marriage, right? The answer is, it's really humility, it's not arrogance. Because what it means is, that there's something in me that the whole world needs. There's something at stake in your life that the whole world depends on. Nobody before you, nobody after you can fulfill that mission. There is something in each person that is levadoy. It's indispensable and it's completely unique to this boy, to this girl, to this man, to this woman, to this person. And in that sense, you're completely alone. You carry the whole world on your shoulders, just like God does. When Yosef looks into that window, he could see two things. He could see emptiness. He could see a bottomless pit. He could see an endless void. Or he gets to see his father's image. Not only a father who believed in him, a father who taught him that there's a place of levada. There's something in your own journey that is unique to you. Nobody will ever understand it. There's something about your soul that nobody will ever get. Not because they don't want to, not because you don't have people close to you. But the Pasuk says in Tehillim, Ani yadati ki Hashem. I know that God is great. I. There's something that I know that nobody else knows. There's something that you know that nobody else knows. There's something that you know that nobody else knows. If I ask every person, tell me who God is. Every person has a different experience. Ani, it's supposed to be that way. Every person is different. Every soul, every song is different. We each have our own ballad to sing in the cosmic symphony. 
and we are each an indispensable note in that divine symphony. Here I take my aloneness and I connect it to an aloneness that doesn't crush me and destroy me. To an aloneness that empowers me and tells me that I am an expression of Ein Oid Milvadai, of God's aloneness. When I could connect my aloneness with Hashem's aloneness, then my aloneness allows me to become a messenger of infinity, an ambassador of the vine. And thus my rope is completely transformed. Have a wonderful week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.